0: W262CP Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries.
1: Second question In what practical ways can we be merciful to others? As I said before, we have to know the broad general principle, but we can't stop there. We have to probe in our lives and say, okay, if mercy is to show compassion to others by our actions, then what action should we take?
2: It is a universalist pastor of the 19th century, Edwin Hubble Chapin, who is credited with saying, mercy among the virtues is like the moon among the stars. Mr. Chapin was more correct in his assessment than perhaps he may even have realized. For in the Beatitudes, which Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount, it is the act of mercy which most clearly demonstrates the love that he expected from his disciples. Mercy is the action that springs from real love and real compassion. Hello and welcome again to Verse by Verse. As always, our teacher here on the program is Steve Kreloff, the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Steve has been examining Christ's Sermon on the Mount, and today we will be continuing his study on the Beatitude, Blessed are the Merciful. Although our study is rooted in the text of Matthew chapter 5, we will be joining Pastor Steve in Romans chapter 1 verse 29 as he explains how unusual the quality of mercy was in the time of Jesus Christ.
1: Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving. And then notice, notice what caps it all off. This is the culminating evil of this long list of ungodly qualities. He says, unmerciful, unmerciful. And from what we know of the ancient world, it was a very cruel world. It was a world without mercy. It was a cruel place to live. To the ancient Greeks and Romans, mercy was considered a sign of, of deep weakness. In fact, one Roman philosopher referred to mercy as the disease of the soul. And why would he say that? Because they viewed mercy as, as a sign of weakness, something that real men didn't do. Real men were about power and control, not being sensitive to the needs of weak people. Not, not being thoughtful and considerate to, to stop and help somebody in need. That was a sign of weakness. And in their love of power, the Romans could be mercif- without any mercy, merciless in inflicting great suffering upon others. For example, in the Roman world, fathers had the power to decide if, if their newborn child lived or died. If a newborn infant was a female rather than a son or was born with some kind of physical handicap, the father could just turn his thumb down and the child would be immediately drowned. That was the ancient world. That was the ancient world. Regular citizens had the power to treat their slaves as as living tools that could be disposed of whenever they desired. And even husbands had the authority to have their wives actually put to death for the smallest irritation. That was the ancient Roman world. Cruel, heartless without mercy, savage. What about the ancient Jewish world? Because that was really the context in which our Lord was, was speaking. What about them? Though the Old Testament certainly spelled out that, that God required his people to show mercy, they didn't usually do that. Where did he show this? Where did he spell this out? For example, Micah 6.8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, that's mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. There's in fact even a song put to that. Romans 12, six says, therefore return to your God, observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. They were were told to show kindness. This this wasn't hidden in scripture. This was very clear. Yet the majority of, of Jewish people did not do this. They often reduced their religion to mere outward observances of rituals. That, that was all it was external performance and they had no regard for God's honor or the welfare of people. And you know what happens when this takes place and it can easily take place in our lives. When, if we're legalistic and if we only, only have a, an outward um, external performance mentality concerning our our faith, if all it is is outward show, here's what happens. You become harsh and hard and judgmental of everybody who's different from you, self-righteous, and you become unmerciful. And that certainly was the attitude of the Pharisees. And you see this so clearly in how the Pharisees reacted to some of the things that Jesus did, especially what he did on the Sabbath. Let me show you this. Matthew 12, Matthew chapter 12. I want you to see this is what happens when your religion is just external. There's no heart devotion to God. You forget about mercy and all you are is a harsh legalist telling everybody else how they ought to live their life. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse one. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. Then he went on to say, for the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. And he said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now let's let's go back and explain this. There was no law, there is no law that prohibits uh, uh, doing what these men were doing on the Sabbath. there's no law prohibiting that. Farmers were not allowed to make profit on the Sabbath. They were not allowed to do their normal work on the Sabbath, but hungry people in need of food could certainly glean from the farmer's fields. There was no law against that. It's the Pharisees' uh, interpretation and and their man-made rules about that. And Jesus said there's even a biblical precedent for this. When, When you're hungry, you can glean from the fields. He said God wasn't offended when David and his men in the Old Testament ate food that was normally reserved for the priests. They were hungry and they needed food. And the the law of the Sabbath was never intended to be a a strict law that they couldn't do anything on the Sabbath, just your normal work. Jesus explained the principle that that these self-righteous leaders failed to see, that God desired compassion, not some rigid, adherence to man-made legalistic rules and therefore he went on to to heal people on the sabbath they cared more about their sheep than they did about individuals that's what religion legalistic religion does to you you become meticulous about certain things but you fail to take into account the compassionate welfare of other people. In fact, later in Matthew 23, Jesus condemned these Pharisees for being so meticulous and picky about observing the tithe. But he said, you've forgotten far larger issues of your faith, like mercy, faithfulness, justice. What, what he's saying is this. In other words, look, you people are so concerned about the tithe down to the, down to the penny or the denarius. You've forgotten that there are far more significant things in, in the law like mercy, justice, faithfulness. So the world of our Lord's day, both the Roman world, the Jewish religious world was for the most part void of mercy and compassion. And it's in this arena, in this setting, in this context that Jesus declares that his followers of all people are merciful. In contrast to religious Jews, in contrast to pagan secularists, those who follow Christ, are characterized by mercy. The question is, why? Why? It's certainly not because we are intrinsically merciful. We're not. We're spiritually bankrupt. We're those who are so sinful, we recognize and we mourn over it. We're poor in spirit. We know how vile, we know how wretched we are. Now, the reason that we're merciful is because of God's grace in our lives. God's grace in our lives. We are merciful because we have been changed on the inside. We have been regenerated born again. Our hearts have been transformed by God's power. At our conversion, the Bible says God gave us a new heart. Peter calls it a divine nature, a divine nature. That divine nature is a merciful nature. Why? Because, now watch this, God is merciful in his nature, and if we get that same nature in us, then we take on the qualities of God. Now, it's intrinsic to him. God has always been merciful, but we have not always been merciful. At our salvation, God gave us a divine nature, and now there is the capacity to be merciful. We are merciful because that's now part of our nature. It, it used to not be, but it is. Luke, in Luke uh, 6, 36, Jesus said, be merciful just as your father is merciful. God is merciful. Therefore, divine nature means that we're going to reflect that, that mercy. Paul called God the father of mercies in 2 Corinthians 1.3. When we come to, him, come to him for salvation, he transforms us. He gives us that new nature, and we begin by the process of sanctification to demonstrate mercy. In fact, let me show you this. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 gives us a marvelous contrast between what we were and what we've become by God's grace. This is, and this is important to understand because when you see how God has transformed you by his mercy, you will be merciful to others. Notice Titus chapter three, beginning in verse one, Paul writes, remind them, he's telling Titus, remind the churches and the leaders on this island, the islands of Crete, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to, uh, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now that's what they're supposed to do. But watch this, verse 3 says, for we also once were foolish, we were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Paul says, I want you to do this, but remember, this is the way you once were apart from God's grace. This verse, verse three is what we were, but what's happened. Why can we now be merciful? Because verse four says, but when the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to what? His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. What these verses tell us is that the reason we're no longer hateful and hating one another, as verse 3 says, is because God has shown us kindness. God has shown us kindness in saving us, in regenerating us. In other words, he's made us new creatures in Christ. And as new creatures, we are no longer unmerciful. Now we try to be kind to others. Now we do deeds of of compassion. And folks, that's the whole key that, that drives us to be merciful to others. Not only have our hearts been changed, but now we are motivated to relieve the misery of others because we've experienced mercy in our own lives. If God has been merciful to us and he has, then how can we not be merciful to others? In other words, we want to treat others with mercy because God has treated us with mercy. Not only in saving us, but he continues to be merciful, doesn't he? As you go through illness, does God not show you his mercy? As you've been lonely, has God not shown you his mercy? As you have been in need of comfort, has God not been the, the one who comforted you? He may have sent someone else, but he's the source of that. God continues to treat us mercifully by ministering to us in our pain and suffering. When you've had physical needs, has he not met them? Absolutely. That's mercy. Now, I think this is important to understand, and I said I would touch on this before, because there are times when unconverted people do make great efforts to relieve the pain and the suffering of others, especially as we, see those, uh, as we see a world crisis develop, such as sending aid to tsunami victims. How do we view that in light of what Jesus said? How do we view the world doing compassionate deeds in light of the fact that Jesus said that, that mercy only characterizes citizens, Of the kingdom. Well, I think to begin with, we have to be honest and we have to acknowledge that these are commendable humanitarian acts of kindness, but different than what Jesus was referring to in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said that mercy is only characteristic of citizens of his kingdom. Paul said that the world is unmerciful. What's the difference between what we do and what the world does? The difference is in motivation, motivation. Why we do what we do and why those who are unsaved do what they do. When the world shows pity for its fellow creatures, it is motivated by any number of things. It could be just natural sympathetic affection, part of the the fall of man and part of the image of God shows through. Or it could be just a conviction about the solidarity of the human race. Hey, I'd wanna be treated this way, so I'm gonna treat somebody else this way. Perhaps it's to impress others. There are many, many, many people who do all kinds of outward shows of of humanitarian care to impress other people. Or maybe even to impress God in an attempt to merit salvation. That's, That's what religion is. I do these things so that God will show me favor. Or maybe it's just to relieve a guilty conscience. You know, I haven't treated my neighbor well, so I'll send some money across the globe to help somebody. It could be any number of motivating factors that drive non-Christians to be compassionate, but the Christian is motivated to help his fellow man for two reasons, two reasons, note this. Number one, because we desire to glorify God in our life and our behavior. What does it mean to glorify God? Essentially, it means to show him off, to show him off, to put him on display. We want to, in in this context, we mean we want to show people how merciful God is by our own mercy. Not to impress others by our, by our behavior, not to get glory for ourselves, but for Him. Secondly, the reason we, we demonstrate mercy is because of Christ's mercy in our own lives. Christ's merciful love for us compels us to show mercy to other people. And I want you to see this. Second Corinthians chapter five. I think one of the most important passages in the New Testament because it, it causes us to examine why we do what we do. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as Paul is defending himself and his apostolic ministry before this church, he explains why he did what he did. They questioned him at every, every move. And so he says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, not, meaning not my love for him, but his love for me. The love of Christ demonstrated by the cross controls us, it drives us, it compels us. In other words, when I see how much he loves me, how can I not show love to other people? When I see how merciful his love has been, how can I not be merciful to others? Let's look at it more closely. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. he's talking about believers, not talking about Christ dying for everybody. I don't believe the Bible teaches that, but it teaches that he died for his own and his own, according to this, die then. We die to ourselves. Notice he says, and he died for all, can't be the world, it's talking about believers, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, might no longer live for themselves. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf, it means when you became a Christian, you died to yourself. And you said, I will let Christ's love control me. And that is why we demonstrate mercy to others because we've been the recipients of such mercy. So our service to others is really rendered out of our service for him. According to Paul, we we no longer live for ourselves, no longer live for ourselves. And part of living for him is to be merciful to others. And though the world at times rises up to help the afflicted, and it's a good thing, their view of mercy is, is flawed because it is not biblically motivated and it never will be biblically motivated because they've never been regenerated. So the first question that helps us to understand this fifth beatitude is, what did Jesus mean by the term merciful? He simply meant compassion in action, born out of the right motives. Second question, in what practical ways can we be merciful to others? As I said before, we have to know the broad general principle, but we can't stop there. We have to probe in our lives and say, okay, if mercy is to show compassion to others by our actions, then what action should we take? Well, to begin with, I think the most obvious way of showing mercy is through acts of kindness and meeting the physical needs of others. It it starts there. And I want you to see a great place in scripture that reveals uh, some wonderful truths, Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, Jesus is speaking prophetically and he's talking about the the coming tribulation, seven-year tribulation period. During that time, the Jewish people as God begins to work in their lives and and converts the nation, uh, the Jewish people will suffer deep persecution, deep harm by the Antichrist and those who who follow him. And in Matthew 25, at the end of it, Jesus reveals that those who treated the Jewish people well during the tribulation, when the whole world turned against them, when there was great anti-Semitism, those who, who will treat the Jewish people well demonstrate their faith. This doesn't make them believers, but it demonstrates they are believers. And so he starts in Matthew 25, verse 34. He says this, then the king will say to those on his right, meaning this is the end of the tribulation. There's a judgment They come before him. He'll say to these on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to, to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, meaning the Jewish people, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Now, we're not going to deal with the whole passage, but one of the primary truths that our Lord is teaching here is he is revealing the practical ways that that people during the tribulation extended mercy to those who were hurting. And so it's a valid application for us. In these verses, Jesus speaks of some very tangible acts of mercy. He speaks of feeding the hungry, of clothing the naked, visiting the sick and in prison. In other words, anytime you can meet someone's physical needs motivated by by love for Christ and his love for you and Christ's glory, you're being merciful anytime. That means, folks, let me apply it to you. That means that it is a merciful thing to financially help those who are poor and in need. That's that's one way we can show mercy. If you help, you're showing mercy. It means that it's merciful to share our material possessions with those who are in need. If you have possessions that you can share, you're doing a merciful act people who are suffering because they don't have these possessions. And mercy, I might add, is not merely a New Testament doctrine that just, that just showed up when the apostles wrote. Back in the Old Testament, God told his people to be merciful. In fact, just on the verge of entering the, the land of Canaan in Deuteronomy 15, listen to this. This is, this is foundational to the Bible. Verse 7 of Deuteronomy 15, if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers In any of your towns and your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not uh, harden your heart nor close your, your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. That's mercy. God's heart is a heart of compassion. God's heart is a heart of compassion. But notice, if you look back at Matthew 25, Jesus not only spelled out how we can show people mercy in their physical needs, he went beyond that. And he spoke about emotional and social needs that we can, we can meet. He spoke about visiting those who are ill. He spoke about visiting the sick, the imprisoned. How do we apply this? Well, you could visit those who are ill, the hospital, their home, dropping by or phoning lonely people. Perhaps a visit to a nursing home to see someone who's old and, and probably somewhat forgotten. Maybe it means comforting someone who's grieving, and I don't mean counseling them. Too often we, we feel compelled to, to tell people, give them little sermons while they're going through grief. Don't do that. They need comforters, not counselors. If they want a counselor, they'll go to a counselor. And counsel is another form of showing mercy, but that's not the point in comfort. Comforting someone who is grieving or just encouraging someone who's down and and hurting. See, mercy takes on many shapes and and many forms. You know, one of the greatest ways we can show mercy to people is by opening your home, being hospitable to someone who is lonely, having someone over for a meal, some some fellowship, maybe just a phone call to ask somebody how they are. I I, I know often women do that. I think that's somewhat foreign to men, but the Bible teaches that that would be a valid application.
2: Mercy can take many shapes in our lives, from giving to those in need to even forgiving those who have offended us. True mercy requires the kind of love and compassion that only God can plant in our hearts. As you have been listening to Verse by Verse today, you may have come to the realization that the kind of love and compassion that Jesus is teaching about is lacking from your heart. We would like to tell you more about how you can receive this love and begin to reflect it to others just give us a call at 727-239-0306. We would love to help you discover God's transforming love.